What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the stream. Is this microphone coming through loud and clear for you all? Oh, geez. Did you see that internet speed? Not looking good. Welcome to the live stream. We're waiting on Ted still, but it's, uh, he's just got to get set up, I think. Don't we all? Let's be honest. Yeah, we do. Um, I went through quite the hurdle today trying to make Skype do what I wanted it to do. Couldn't get that figured out. Figured out a workaround, though. And so I want to say thank you to Master Signified Bodies in the chat for helping me do my test call earlier to figure out for sure that what I needed it to do is just not going to happen. Um, you know, you would think that, oh no, let me put the waveform behind my camera here. You would think that they would make it so that, uh, you'd think that they'd make it so that like when you do a Skype call, your video shows up side by side with the other person, just right. Well, that used to be the way it was. That was even the way it was when I did my interview with Chris Catrone not very long ago, right? But now things are different because software, sometimes they change around pretty fundamental things without any warning. And so it can be a little jarring if you depend on these forms of software. Maybe I should have just all along been relying on, uh, you know, stream yards or whatever, but I do like doing things myself with OBS. So we'll see if this works. Lima Charlie. Says Master Signified Bodies. The thumbnail is everything, says Mert Kitty. What's up, Mert Kitty? Yeah, let's look at that thumbnail. Thank you. Thank you for the thumbnail compliment. It's pretty good, huh? I love this Mark's Wojak. I have to say, for anyone who's like, whoa, what? Well, in the meme world, Wojak is like a cartoon character, basically. So, um,. It's this. It's the specific one that you see very, very different variations of. There's the Doomer Wojak. It's probably the most favorite, popular one of them all. Um, what I, what I think I'm gonna do while we're killing time, slaying it, slaying time here, is show you all a couple of awesome things. One, I just want to take a quick look over here at um, Instagram. Plead memes. Oh, come on. How, how did I just have it? There we go. Like this. Let's go to plead memes. I just want to show you all a couple of things that exist and are worth checking out if you're into social media at all. Um, I cannot exactly assume an audience of philosophy people who have learned to not be reliant on digital media or at least, you know, utilize it for educational or pseudo-educational, really entertainment-type purposes. Um, but quick PSA, you know, if you have the time and energy and attention to be focusing on just doing philosophy or theory, like, on your own right now, you should turn this off and be doing that. If that's, if that's rare for you and you feel that you have it right now. But if that's pretty normal and you just really want to be here for this, then that's great. 
uh, I, I, the reason I say that is because, yeah, it's really awesome to have a couple people in the live stream. It really is. But everything I do is not just for the live, the live stream audience, but these videos are meant to be standalone and used later on repeat after the fact. So I expect, and I look forward to, um, revisiting this myself <clears throat> because what we'll be getting into is a whole conversation about the law of accumulation and the theory of breakdown in critique of political economy. This is not uh, anything that you've ever thought about probably before, not in these terms, because insofar as you've heard theories of crisis about capitalism, they are almost always wrong, super, super wrong. And that's what the thumbnail is all about, actually, right? That's what the thumbnail is all about. But before we get into that stuff and while we wait for Ted, I'm just going to go ahead and share some memes. Um, this is a death drive meme from the death drive means for, for Lacanian post teens, Facebook group. Definitely check that Facebook group out. If you, if you're on Facebook, um, the one, the ones I want to show you though, are a couple ones made by master signified bodies and Dimbus McNair and also yours truly. These are time energy memes and theory plea memes. This is a theory plea meme. Um, I will uh, assume an, a listening audience that does not have eyes on the screen, so I'll actually have to uh, make this accessible for you all. It has uh, a guy and gal cuddling on a bed. Looks kind of like a, a small bedroom that they are in, and they're watching TV. And uh, over <laughs> over the TV uh, is Introduction to Lacan, Part One: Imaginary, Symbolic, Real. And that was the first conversation I had on Lacan with Michael Downs. So, you know, the moment history was made. Master Signified Body says, I love the Wojak marks. And Mert Kitty says, meme theory, please, lol. Yes, please explain Rage Comics to the Zoomers in the chat. Oh, shit. Do I know Rage Comics? You have to explain. T tell me about Rage Comics really quick. Maybe I know what you're talking about, but I probably don't. Um, this one has the guy, the Wojak in the corner, sipping on a drink with a hat, party hat on, <laughs> looking kind of like, kind of has like a, you can't really tell what the mood is until you think about it, but it's a little like, <laughs> you know, like I'm, I'm over here. I know something's up. They don't know. And it's got a couple of couples dancing and, uh, the Wojak's thinking they don't know I've invested in time energy. And uh, the one couple, it says, subtle art of not giving a fuck fans. And the other couple dancing says, 48 laws of power simps. And so, you know, uh, I, I, if you've never met a 48 laws of power simp, then, I, then you just don't know. <laughs> but these people read Robert Greene and think he's like, you know, like, they think that he's our modern day you know, Socrates or uh, Confucius for that matter. But uh, yeah, and then, oh, uh, my favorite little feature here is that uh, this was another Master Signified Bodies meme. Uh, he he cut out the give me my time energy uh, graphic with the time energy symbol and it's uh, on the chest of the Bojack, which is just, <laughs> I want that shirt. I want it. 
This is great. We weren't going to just do a, a meme review, but if we're killing time, let's do a meme review. And then if it turns out that for some reason Ted Reese is not able to join us, I think what I'll probably do is I'll read you a few uh, key quotes and talk about the law of accumulation and the theory of breakdown. I'll raise questions I have about it. You know, it'll, I'll, I'll interview myself. <laughs> That's what I'll do. So don't worry. No matter what, we're going to get into what nobody understands including myself probably. But this one's great. This is a meme made by Salamun DaCosta, uh, who's a regular in our chat. Actually, where is Sa Salamun? It's kind of weird. I, I figured this is, a, this is a time that actually works for my European friends. So uh, I'm going to shoot Salamun a message actually directly right now. Um, yo, for once I'm actually streaming at a good time for you. So uh, hop on stream if you've got the, if you're available. Normally, it's like, you know, one in the morning when I start streaming, if you're in Poland. But anyway, Salamun made this. Lil A, it's, a, it's an album art. Uh, it says parental advisory, explicit content, and it's got Slavoj Žižek with purple hair and face tattoos. It says dialectes uh, on the forehead, Hegel boy under the right eye, and the barred subject symbol under the left eye. And it says Lil A. And then the, the, that's the, the artist's name, Lil A. And then the title of the album is Less Than Nothing. And it actually took me a little while. I was like, why Lil A? And then I felt real stupid because like it's like one of the key concepts in Lacanian theory is uh, the Lil A, the little object of desire, the little object cause of desire, the objet petit a. So that's... Uh, you know, you can call it the little A. <laughs> it's the thing that keeps us wanting all the time. It's the insatiable void that cannot be fulfilled in the structure of our um, our psyche or our subjectivity, to be a little bit more French about it. This one I just made a couple days ago. Uh, it's got Eric Andre shooting Hannibal. Bang, bang, bang. And Eric Andre, it says capitalism. And Hannibal, it says time energy. And then it's zoomed in on Eric Andre's face. And he's like, what? Why is everyone so ignorant, lonely, and distracted? Mert Kitty says, Rage Comics is all the old reaction memes, like the troll face and all the rest. Oh. So it's basically all of the, the Twitch uh, emotes, right? Or... Yeah, I think it's called emotes on Twitch. I'm thankfully a little further away from Twitch meme culture. Um, this one is a picture of Slava Zizek um, uncharacteristically laughing, and his eyes are very bright, and it's beautiful, and it says, I would prefer time energy. Um, and one person said, I don't know how Slava Zizek fits into time energy theory. Um, and actually, even Master Signified Bodies had brought that up in my time energy lecture I did a couple days ago on this channel. Make sure to check that out if you haven't. It's like got a thousand views already, which is pretty crazy. I don't normally get a lot of views because I'm not doing anything to try to get a lot of views. So it's kind of weird, but it's right here. It's exhaustion and time energy. Um, and it's, it's the most recent in my uploads. If you go to my homepage, uh, youtube.com forward slash C forward slash theory you'll find uh, all my playlists. And I've got these Professor Plebe lectures 
and it's actually the most recent installment in my Professor Plebe lectures. The other one I just did very recently was, uh, it's called Plebe's Impassioned Lecture on Heidegger's Being in Time. And the thumbnail says, why I care about this fucking book. Well, if you want to know why I care about this fucking book, then you'll just have to check it out. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, so... But Master Saint, if I bodies had asked how this, you know, time energy relates to Zizek's theory of ideology, and I don't have a, a straightforward answer just yet because I'm still figuring that out. I'm still trying to figure out that theory of ideology. And the fact is, is Lacanian psychoanalysis and uh, existential phenomenology are different approaches to doing philosophy as is structuralism itself. And so, uh, you know, like critique of political economy structuralism. And so for me... Uh, one of the tasks I have set out for myself, obviously, is to think through what it means to bring those projects together. Not easy. It's going to be a lifelong task. If you really want the real definitive book and you don't want to have to hear about me thinking about it until the real book comes out, just uh, set yourself a reminder on your phone and come back in the year uh, 2052, and uh, I should have it figured out by then. This meme has a couple of hot babes at the gym. One is on a treadmill, the other is on her phone, but she's, you know, she's pretending to be on her phone, but she's actually looking in the same direction as the, the blonde who's on the, the treadmill. And the blonde on the treadmill is saying, what do you think he's listening to? They're, they're both checking out this Chad who's working out. And she's like probably death metal or hard, hard rock projection on her case because she's totally like, you know, the, the, the goth, the goth e-girl look. And, you know, so he's like working out with his, his headphones in and uh, then it shows you what he's listening to. It's Introduction to Lacan Part 3, <laughs> Death Drive, with uh, on the top, you know, we, we talked about Sigmund Freud, Slavoj Zizek, and Todd McGowan. Uh, that was number three installment uh, in the Lacan series that I've done with Michael Downs. We've done four so far. We've got a few more planned, but we'll see if we ever find the time and energy to actually have that conversation. Uh, this one had this one was probably one of the first ones Master Signified Bodies made when he first started memeing just like two weeks ago. And I laughed so hard when I first saw this. Average School of Life fan. And it just shows some spaz being like, ah! And then it's got Average Theory, average theory Plebe Enjoyer. And this is like the most cut Chad you, you'll ever see. Like his, his neck's probably as thick as a tree trunk. And he's just grinning. And he's got like that epic jawline he's like <laughs> and it's true it's actually true I, every every average theory plebe enjoyer that i've met is exactly like this guy 100 percent uh this one's got like the doomer who's like almost dead decrepit you know uh and it says the world is a cruel and unjust place there is no harmony in the universe the only constant is suffering Oh, shit. Someone said, did you change your mic? Why? Is, it be, is, it, is that because it's good now and it wasn't good before? Also, chat, nobody told me, but uh, my memes were being cut off here. You couldn't even see all of what I was trying to show. So sorry about that. Um, but how dare you all not, not like show me, not, not, not like call me out on it. Look at this, though. So, yeah, we got the Doomer, decrepit Doomer, 
falling into the ground. Then it says minutes later, and we've got the, the regular Wojak kind of looking refreshed, rejuvenated, a little blush on the cheeks even. And it says, OMG, oh my God, time energy. And uh, it's because YouTube is recommending Introduction to Lacan Part 1. We've got uh, this one. This one, I love this one. I made this one. Slavoj Zizek, I would prefer not to. Deadpan face, looking straight at the camera. And uh, it, this is the Drake meme format. So on the top, you've got Zizek being like, deadpan, hell no. On the bottom, you've got Zizek being like, <laughs> like laughing and looking to the side, right? And so to the, to the side of the I would prefer not to Slavoj, We've got the a shirt, a long sleeve black shirt that in large white print says Sigma male grind set. Hustle culture shit, right? And then we've got Slavo Zizek being like, hey, give me my time energy. And so bringing it back around to the question, how does Slavoj really tie into time energy theory? Well, beyond the fact that I am like a young Zizekian in training, thanks to these theory of ideology conversations that I've been doing with Mikey and the Zizekian interpretation of Hegel and Lacan that I've been getting into through Todd McGowan and his, I mean, virtual protege at this point, Michael Downs. Um, beyond the fact that I am one of the young Zizekians in a sort of sense, uh, there is just, uh, I don't, what I like about Slavoj's Bartleby politics is the idea of libidinally disinvesting from the system and from all these scripts and frameworks and oppositions that have become so charged and that basically dupe us into playing along even when we think we're playing against it. And uh, part of that libidinal disinvestment means cutting yourself off from getting a sick kind of enjoyment or pleasure uh, from the thing uh, in question. Like you, you might love to hate it. Well, don't love to hate it. Don't love it. Don't don't love to hate it. Um, stop it. You know uh, what we need is to refocus. Um, and so saying I would prefer not to, which is the Bartleby approach. Uh, you know, taken to it, taken to its extreme, Bartleby dies or ends up in prison or whatever, because um, like he just says I, he would prefer not to to everything. Uh, but there's there's also what would you prefer to do for me the positive all right we back one of the things that i like though is that even if it had you all buffering for a second the people who will be watching this in the future like salamun da costa who just said i promise i promise to rewatch and comment i'm too busy with marks to miss such an opportunity um yeah just uh yeah, they don't have to see the buffering, thankfully. But yeah, my internet just kind of cut out for a second there, but it looks like I'm back. And uh, my internet speed is looking real good, so I don't know what happened there, you know. It do be that way when you're on an antenna. Let's see if I can refresh and get that meme back. Oh, I love this one. Oh, I love this meme so much. Wait, why is it... Uh... What happened here? Uh, I want to have this this full screened. I don't want to have to. Here we go. Okay, we've got two more, uh, three more memes to review. And then I'll show you that Facebook group. And then if Ted still hasn't joined us, I'll just take over this on my own. All right. So 
Uh, this one says, stop glamorizing the hustle and start glamorizing whatever lifestyle this is. And it's got, I don't know. Anne, would you say that that's like a shrew? Oh, this little this little cartoon character that's underneath the mushroom? Oh, I can't hear you because you're in my ears. Oh. <laughs> um, a mushroom? This, what, animal? What, what is that creature? It's not like supposed to be a cartoon anteater is it <laughs> no it's not an anteater i don't know anteaters have long noses you're right this I is cartoon it's a little shrew <laughs> i don't know whatever what it, is. it is oh you brought me oranges i brought us oranges and pancakes i hope it's okay if i eat for a minute since ted's not here yet yeah you can eat you can hang out cool um yeah you won't be able to hear but obviously That's i'm not fine. listening to anything anyway so you can just hear the live version of whatever I'm saying on the microphone. <laughs> Anne was just listening from the kitchen while making some pancakes, pancakes. and slicing some oranges. So to anybody who's never met Anne before, Hi. this is Anne. I'm Anne. Uh, this is my partner of the last three and a half years. And yeah. um, we've done stuff on this channel before. Anybody who's been around for a long time probably knows Anne. Master Signified Body says, what up, Anne? What up? Uh, Anne and I are... We might meet up with Master Signified Bodies. We'll see. It might be just me. We we'll don't know. See. We're trying to make some plans. I might go to San Diego so I can get some good Mexican food with, with Andrew. See, I know that you, Andrew, like know all the good food spots, but like I'm vegan. And so I don't wanna be like, oh we go to find the vegan like like I want you all to do your thing. But who knows? I might be there. Just working working lives. You know? Getting work off is gonna be the hard part, yeah. If I did, yeah. Anyway, so that's a whole other conversation we'll have later. So anyway, uh, so this back to this meme. It's it's, it's a cartoon. It, it looks like it's from a child, a children's storybook, yes. and it's got the the cutest little shrew ever. I think it's a shrew just You're sitting right. underneath a mushroom <clears throat> while it's raining, and the other it looks like there's like a rat that's out in the water feeling the rain coming down, but the shrew is smiling happily, reading a book. And what I really like is that he's got a little blue coat on and he's got his little trousers. It's very wholesome. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's as wholesome as like OG Winnie the Pooh, you know, art or like over, over the garden wall kind of, no, actually, wait, that's not the one I meant to say. I meant to say the, the, like the little Peter rabbit cartoon from back in the day. It's kind of that, that kind of art. And he's got like a little thermos with his like hot beverage, ostensibly probably hot, coffee. probably coffee. Might be hot cocoa, depending on your flavor. And then he's got a little picnic basket. And, you know, so he did have, uh, what? I, he had something else in his hands. I think it was just like a mug and he was just chilling. But I put the book there and then put the little uh, give me my time energy logo. On the book. On the book, yeah. And so. Um, he's reading theory plea book. He's reading a theory plea book. That's what's going on. <laughs> That's what's going on. And in fact, yeah, actually, it does say give me my time energy there on the screen. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and put the the version that has Theory Plea. Oh, this is the version that's actually on the book there. So. Nice. Yeah. Anyway, last meme. Or is there is there two more? Life needs more philosophy, bonfires, and time energy. <laughs> I think this said beer, bonfires, and less drama. <laughs> which is, like, fair enough, but... What I want is bonfires, philosophy, and time energy. So stay tuned for a conference in the next year or two when we'll all get together for bonfires and... and a camping conference. A camping conference with fireside chats. 
It's going to happen, folks. Mm -hmm. Save up your money now. <laughs> you all better just start yeah. saving now. And then the last one is, uh, I had to make this meme because people keep saying time energy wrong. They keep saying it with two E's. Uh, they, they keep saying it where it's like time energy, like we're both are uppercased and, and hyphenated or like combined, but not fully combined because there's still two E's. Um, and so we've got, it's the, it's the classic Batman smacking Robin across the face. Bap! By the way, I want to see the comic origin of this yeah, scene. Yeah, what's going on? I want to know what Robin actually did to get slapped by Batman. Did he say something totally inappropriate or do something totally fucked up? Or, <laughs> or was he just like saying something slightly stupid and Batman is being a total asshole? I'm, like, like, what if Robin did something actually bad, like, like super bad and really needed to be smacked upside the face? Or what if Batman is just like an actual super dick? So... I mean, we all probably figure it's Batman's a super dick, but I didn't realize that his character was also like an asshole, like to Robin. I didn't. Maybe oh, I don't know heck? the comics well enough. Don't watch the movie if you haven't read the mang. The, well, I don't think it's the same as uh, manga, but you know. Master Signified Body says there are vegan options everywhere. That's true. I am not fearful for a lack of vegan options. Merc Kitty says, yes, vegan solidarity. All right, you vegans. All right. We'll, all make, right, a, we'll make a separate chat for you all so you can go talk about it. how much it sucks to be. I'm just kidding. Actually, the fact is, is I, I look out for vegans. Yes, Plebe's a very good vegan, non-vegan partner for a vegan. I look out. Like, first day we met, first time we were hanging out, I was like, oh, look, there's a vegan option. Yeah, actually, I introduced Anne to uh, Thai food, Indian, Indian food, food, Ethiopian food. I never would have known. Those are some of the best vegan foods in the world. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, so some of the best foods in the world, I'd add that. And then if you go to facebook.com forward slash groups, oh yeah, forward slash plebe enjoyers, hmm. which is a sort of meme from, actually comes from Andrew's like first meme, actually. I sh it should have been Average Plebe Enjoyers huh. is the name of the group. But we've got here. I'm going to actually uh, make myself uh, smaller here. Duplicate yeah. the scene. This is important stuff. Yeah, I want people to be able to see this shit. So uh, make myself smaller. Make this shit larger. Put the shit on top. I'm cussing so much. I, f I feel like we should probably play the... Fuck shit stack song next. Um, I showed that to Andrew the other day. Oh my god. He had never seen that before. It's a great song. He was like, where was this song when I needed it? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what, you don't you don't need it still? Jay Grimes says, is it that the goal of communism is the reduction of working hours to zero, which is being <laughs> misunderstood? An economist named Jehu says this is the solution to everything, and I'd agree. Jay Grimes, please send to theoryplebe at gmail.com some info on that or add me on at uh, DM Saunders on, uh, on Facebook because that's just my theory, Facebook at this, at this point. Um, yeah. Anybody who's a fellow traveler is welcome to add me here. This is my... 
Actually, this is kind of fucked up. This is probably my best. My is this fucked up? I don't know. Well, what's the context of this child being looking like that? Okay, before I explain what Anne's talking about for the people who have eyes off screen, I'll t I'll say Jay Grimes. I want you to send me some stuff on this on this economist you're talking about. That is actually not what is what we're going to get into with Grossman. If Ted Reese ever comes, wow, he's 37 minutes late. I did, this is not characteristic of him, of him. So I hope he's okay. I hope everything's fine. Hey Ted, we've been live for uh, 37 minutes. I'm just showing everybody memes and talking about things. But if you can't join, I think what we'll end up doing is I'll read some quotes from your book and from Heinrich Grossman's book, and and I'll talk about this to the best of my ability to at least wet people's appetites and then we can always reschedule later because I know you had some stuff in a couple of hours and so if it's just not going to work that's totally okay sent sent see I don't fuck with text y'all it's voice messaging only yeah voice messaging is like the way to go yeah I've gotten so many people to leave twitter dms and other kinds of dms and get on the me the voice messaging shit with me Anyway, so Anne was saying, what's the, what's the context? Because it, this looks like a child who a has sad, been... A sad, sad child. A sad child with like non, big... Non-American child. A sad, non-American child with big bags under his eyes. And he's got a little tie on and a little suit. Um, and he's frowning. And he's got messy-ass hair. Well, don't worry, everybody. It's okay. This child was dressed up as a zombie for Halloween. Oh, that's what happened. Okay. This child dressed up as a zombie for Halloween. But the reason I, you know, it was already, it was already a meme going around. The reason I wanted to use it was because we were joking in the comments about how this looks like Doomer Wojak as a child. <laughs> and so I added, give me my time energy over it. And the, the one I had before that is the classic, uh, it's my money and I need it now commercial for anybody who doesn't know that commercial. It's, People just opening their windows and yelling outside. It's my money and I need it now. And what, it's some insurance company or what was that one for? It was either for an insurance company or for like a same day loan, you know, like pre, uh, whatever, you know. So, yeah. Anyway, it's just some old white dude yelling. It's my time, energy, and I need it now out his window. So, anyway, why did I bring this up? Oh, because I was I was saying. Go to your Facebook. Either in my DMs or through email. Shoot me some info about this uh, economist. The stuff that I'm going to get into is, uh, is, it's related, but it's not that. So, anyway. Also, where should I read about time energy? May I assume I begin with your book? Yeah. Yeah, I think that that's a wonderful place to begin is probably with my book. There's um, also, can I interject here, a YouTube video that plebe made um a few years ago on theory plebe that's just more of a video essay style like that kind of consolidates time energy and what it is that i think is really a good place to start and then the book yeah and if you type in time energy plebe on youtube um the essay Anne's talking about comes up number two for me um, exhaustion and time energy is the lecture I just did. Uh, it's a, it might be a little bit more up to date. I think you'd be better off watching both, though, of course. Like starting with 
The video essay, probably. And then three years ago. And then this one called Time Energy Two, Promises. Features Anne and Scooter. Me. As well as this lecture I did called Time, Energy, and Organizing. Like, all of these add up. In fact, actually, somebody made a playlist. Hold on. <coughs> Oop, doesn't come up. Professor Plebe Lectures. Yeah, there's some of these in my Plebe Lectures, but... I like how YouTube's trying to correct me and say Pleb. It's so funny that I spell it with two E's and then people still say t Theory Pleb. Come on, everybody. I literally put two E's there so that you would say plead. People are like, we know it's wrong. We don't want to say it wrong. You spell it wrong, so we'll say it right. No, if you're saying it right, you're saying it wrong. Yeah. All right. So anyway, plead enjoy your memes for time, energy, want, or post-teens. I say post-teens because uh, it's big kids only. And so uh, and it's also... <laughs> it's big kids only. Well, it's big kids only. And it's funny to me that the... All that this whole genre of of like memes, meme groups always say for teens, and so all of all of the plebe related contents for <coughs> post teens for the big kids. So I I shared Waypoint in the chat. You can definitely find it there. <coughs> that might be the this, the notification sound of of Ted. <sighs> Ted, where are you? Ted, I've got too many windows open. Where is Ted? Um, You've heard of Where's Waldo? Where's no, he? I think I'm getting messages somewhere else. Oh, wait. Here we go. Oh! He said it's not 4 p.m. yet. He said, I'll be there in a minute. Okay. Um, we got the time zone <laughs> difference wrong <laughs> whoops <laughs> where does where in the world is he oh no 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 ted okay no 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 we said he even agreed he confirmed i have it on my screen right now i'm not sharing the screen but he said it oh he's coming from london okay but he he had actually confirmed my time, eight, three, three o'clock his time. And so I think he must have forgot. It's all good. L-O-L. It's cool. Three. So he thought it would be a four. That's all right. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, if he's going to be joining us in a minute, I'm going to stop talking about meme groups. And I'm going to go. Love you. Love See you, you later. Too. I'll still be listening. Thank you for the pancakes. Yeah. I hope I hope I'll get to eat them soon. <laughs> I hope so too. All right, folks. Let's talk about Grossman now. I'm gonna read a quote while we wait for Ted. <coughs> um. Gonna read a quote while we wait for Ted. Everyone. So the question raised in the chat, I think, was a really good question about you know is the argument that what everybody misses is that the goal is to like reduce working hours to zero i like that question a lot um and i think that if there's an economist working on that then that ties in directly with my work i think that it's a sort of pmc dream that 
we could just make it so nobody has to do any real work. Uh, it's really easy for people who don't have to do essential labor to sit there and talk about, well, in my the world I fight for, nobody ever has to do like hard labor. It's like, yeah, okay, sitting on your comfy ass. Okay, sure. Of course, it's really easy to say that. Um, it's not likely that we'll ever get there with that attitude, though. Uh, it's kind of my response to the people who just say they want to abolish any form of work or whatever and automate everything. It doesn't seem that realistic. First of all, because like there would obviously have to be a transitional stage there. Um, second of all, because uh, someone's still going to have to worry about overseeing the robots. And you can't just have robots looking after robots looking after robots all the way down. No. That doesn't make any sense. That'd be very expensive. Can you imagine how many planets we'd have to we'd have to mine for precious rare earth, rare extraterrestrial resources just to be right. able to have that many robots doing that work? Also, I would personally prefer not to have my doctors, people who are like in charge of safe traffic safety, uh, teachers, counselors, uh, cooks. I prefer those to not be robots. Thank you. <laughs> I, yeah, there's a lot of people who are like, no, we can fully mechanize farming. And it's like, yeah, I do agree that, you know, that uh, we can automate a lot of it. Um, in fact, Ted Reese talks a lot about automation in his giant book, Socialism or Extinction. But that's a... Uh, there's people who want to farm. There's people who want to be doctors. Uh, we shouldn't foreclose that possibility. The point is to replace all of these unhappy, anti-intellectual, fucking wannabe cop teachers who are really just doing that job because they need to survive and th this was the only thing they could do. Replace them with, you know, automated stuff and then still have uh, real teachers um, for those who really want it or need it. Right? Like a lot of a lot of doctor stuff can be automated as well. But you're still gonna want to have human heart surgeons sometimes. Okay. So so how to make that world? That's the question. Jay Grimes says, I like the way Murray Bookchin talked about it as the freedom to do creative work rather than labor. The idea being that work doesn't end, but a reduction of coercive elements. Uh, Jay Grimes says, where does he talk about it? Yeah, please do share. Merck Kitty says, we can't trust the robots. I, yeah, 100%. Jay Grimes says, in his defense, I will say he's a very good economist. Hey, you know, and the fact is, is also, he, uh, when you're dealing with things in theory, uh, it's okay to make assumptions, like the assumption Ted Reese makes about, you know, or actually, I don't know how much Ted is making this assumption. I know, I know Peter Fraze in his Four Futures makes this assumption of basically complete automation. It's an okay assumption to make. Obviously, like, theoretically, like, you always have to make some assumptions. That's okay. But switching over now to what I was saying everybody always misses when it comes to Marx. I'm just going to actually read this quote. And I wrote, keep in mind 
that Marx died in 1883. All right. So this is from a section called uh, a section in, uh, I believe, uh, is this Ted Reese's book? I think so. Let's wait. I should know this. All, I lost all of my paragraph breaks when I pasted this into Google Docs, so I'm, I'm a little lost for a second here. Alright, well, here we go. Uh, why the Marxist theory of accumulation and breakdown was misunderstood. Excerpt from The Law of Accumulation by Heinrich Grossman. Alright, so this is... There are fundamental contributions to the critique of political economy and the extension of or adding on to or reinterpreting or reconstructing the Das Kapital project. And Rosa Luxemburg wrote a really important book towards that end. So did Rupert Hilferding, um, arguably Lenin as well. Uh, but The Law of Accumulation by Heinrich Grossman is actually critiquing all of those people. And uh, he's, 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 he's essentially challenging how the Second International and then everything that sprung from the Second International fundamentally misunderstood the theory of breakdown. So let's, let's, let's read this quote. There are specific reasons why the compelling logic of Marx's theory of accumulation was never followed through consistently to its proper conclusion, even by Marxists themselves. From his correspondence, it is possible to see how painful it was for Marx to find that even in party circles in Germany, there was an almost unbelievable indifference to capital. The immaturity of the German workers' movement of that time corresponds better to Lassell's pamphlets than to the massive and brilliant structure of Marx's theory. Even the leading thinkers of the workers' movement were incapable of grasping the decisive aspects of Marx's theory. It is quite typical that W. Leibknecht in 1868 requested Engels to, quote, clarify where the real difference lies between Marx and Lassell, end quote. So it is not difficult to understand why, as M. Beer tells us today, that this is a quote. Join, joining call. A. Yo, welcome. Can you hear me? Ted. Uh-oh. Let me make sure my, my, my uh, microphone's working here. Ted, can you hear me? I cannot hear you. Um, this is, uh, weird. Hold on. Let me, uh, let me send him a WhatsApp. Ted, are you able to hear me? Because I cannot hear you.
All right, folks, I'm going to go ahead and disable my, uh, my camera here. Get it working so that he can see me. I'm going to bring him over so that you all can see him. Let me change my video. Everyone, I'm sorry, this is agonizing. Um, all right, you should be able to see me at least now. Yeah. Uh, this is weird. Yeah, nobody can hear Ted. Don't know why I can't hear you, can't hear you. All right. All right. Let me do so let me figure something out here really quick. We'll figure it out. Going to go into my sound settings and figure some shit out. It's nice and sunny where you are, Ted. All right, what about now? What about now? Are you fucking kidding me? What about now? What about now? What about now? This is terrible. Uh, here. A little tea, Sonny. A little tea, Sonny. A little too sunny, he said. Well, if you want to talk to people while I get the sound figured out, you can go ahead and send a WhatsApp message and I'll play it next to my microphone. <laughs> oh, people. Would it be a plebe stream if we didn't have technical difficulties? Would it be, though? I think something... Okay, let me show you all what I'm seeing in my, in my, in my screen here. I'm seeing... It says Skype is... But I can't turn it up. And then there's another Skype that's at 100%. So to me, to me that that seems to be the problem. I just don't know how to fix it. So let's go ahead and open Task Manager. I'm going to restart Skype, Ted. Oh, I should say this to WhatsApp. I'm going to restart Skype real quick here. But you can send a voice message if you want. I'm going to drop from the call and then I'll call you back. Okay. End task. Closed out. Okay, that's good. Now, let's open Skype again. Oh! Join call. 
join call. Audio and video Audio. settings. That's my video. Uh, this is my audio should work should work okay join call oh it's me oh my god i can hear you I'm like, <laughs> oh, my, oh my god this feels so nice <laughs> i did you I can hear an echo oh. you can hear an echo is that of myself yeah I, can you is that a big deal well, it's going to make it hard for you to talk if you can hear an echo, so let me try to figure that out. Apologies to everyone for, my, for me thinking it was this was starting at four. I'm really sorry. Man. I don't know why I had that in my head. It's so, I, well, originally we were talking about four, right? and, then we, and then we moved it down an hour. And then for a second I thought, Oh, I must have got it wrong. And then I scrolled up and saw you confirmed. And I was like, you know, so it's okay, though. I, Ted, you know, we did an epic meme review. You know, <laughs> we couldn't have done that if it wasn't for, for, for this. So. so are you still hearing your echo? Um, yeah. Let me try to see if I can make something different. All right. What about now? Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry about all the, um. This is like rocket science to me. It really can you, is. Can you? Huh? Do you have an echo of me? Do I have a what? Do you, can you hear an echo of me? No. Okay, well, well if I'm the only one that can hear the echo, then it, it's not a big deal. Oh, it's not going to be super distracting to you? Nah, it's all right. All right, well. And that's... It's gone now. It's gone now? Yeah, it's gone. Yeah, it's gone now. I did nothing different. I hate it. <laughs> see, that that's the worst, is when I'm trying to find the problem, and then I did nothing different. That's the worst. Yeah, see, now you don't know for next time. Yeah. Well, cool, man. That's great. Well, uh, this is probably the point in the stream that people will drop a link in the comments saying that the conversation begins right here um i'll i'll mess around with making it so that we appear better um for folks um i'll make it so that i'm gonna do a little cropping of the of everything so that people can see uh okay on the obs side but did you did you hear any of the stream no this is it's just just the last couple of minutes Okay, so I was doing a little introduction of Grossman by about the time that you joined. Um, I was reading the quote from the from from the theory from uh, the accumulation of uh, the law of accumulation. I was reading the quote that goes, uh, "There are specific reasons why the compelling logic of Marx's theory of accumulation was never followed through consistently to its proper conclusion, even by Marxists themselves." From his correspondence, it is possible to see how painful it was for Marx to find that even in party circles in Germany, there was an almost unbelievable indifference to capital. The immaturity of the German workers' movement of that time corresponds better to Lassell's pamphlets than to the massive and brilliant structure of Marx's theory. Even the leading thinkers of the workers' movement were incapable of grasping the decisive aspects of Marx's theory. It is quite typical that W. Leibknecht in 1868 
requested Engels to clarify where the real difference lies between Marx and LaSalle, or however you say his name. So it is not difficult to understand why, as M. Beer tells us today, that, and then this is where you called me. So I'm going to actually finish the quote here because uh, my, my kind of audience doesn't mind a long quote because they'll come back and re-listen and re-listen until they get it, you know what I mean? But it goes, here's M. Beer says, down to 1882 and for some years afterwards, there was practically no trace of Marxism in Germany. The writings of LaSalle, the recollections of 1848 and French literature formed the real sources from which the movement drew for its theories, ideas, and feelings. Many socialists had had been trained by Rodbertus or During, famous for famous from the anti-During that Engels later wrote. Others were at best acquainted with the publications of the International Working Men's Association, and still others found. Now I hear myself. Did you just do something? Oh my god! No, I turned the light on and then off because I didn't like the effect. But... The lights in your room might be the real cause of the echo. <laughs> Uh, uh, that's not good. That's not good. I can't hear it. Okay, chat, can you hear oh. it? I think chat can probably hear it too. Anyway, I'll finish out the quote. Uh, so, yeah, that that it's so distracting when you hear yourself. Many socialists had been trained by Rudd Burtis or during others were at best acquainted with the publications of the International Working Men's Association and still others founded their demands on appeals to morality and humanity. Kotsky was the first to get through little by little with his popularization of Marx's ideas, which are famously problematic in a lot of ways. And so it's like the main, the, like the priest of Marxism, the high priest, uh, the biggest popularizer of Marxism uh, is Kotsky. So there's a lot of problems there anyway and so i say uh so we're we're to take from this that marx made little impact during his lifetime okay because it said in that this uh this m beer quote said down to and for some years after 1882 well marx died in 1883 so during his lifetime capital was not really received and it doesn't help that people didn't really have access to the second or third uh installments volumes and so grossman you know writing about this here uh writes the law of accumulation and uh the the theory of breakdown and this is you know he was one of the fellow travelers of the frankfurt school but he was also actively engaged in politics he was a marxist in the sense of being a supporter of the bolshevik revolution and he stayed loyal to it um a lot longer than a lot of people um, but on the other side of the aisle, the people who are critical of the Bolshevik revolution, like Paul Matic, um, Paul Matic actually found Grossman's work to be really important. And so whether you were for or against the Leninist experiment or articulation of Marx's theory, you've got Grossman and Matic, two sides of the, of the way of proceeding with Marxism critically. Um, arguing that people have missed something totally fundamental. And I think that this would not even be something on a lot of people's radar right now if it was not for Ted Reese. Ted Reese wrote a book called Socialism or Extinction. He's written a couple of other books. And most notably and most recently, and the reason kind of that we're doing this right now, 
is he just wrote a little book. Is it being published with zero books? Yeah, it's out on Friday. Woo! Yeah, hold it up. It says the end of capitalism, the thought of Heinrich Grossman. And so uh, Ted Reese has been making the rounds to popularize and get people excited about this book. Um, I got a pre-copy or whatever, like I was able to read it ahead of time. So was Swole. Swole is actually in the front cover. Like if you flip it open, like one of the quotes from from him saying that this is a very important work. Um, well, and I think it is. And so I'm really excited to bring you on so we could talk about this. But the one thing that I was telling you yesterday, Ted, is that, uh, I mean, my brain gets a little mushy whenever people start using these these Marxist terms, even though I've been reading this stuff for a long time. And I'm just like, I know that if I'm having trouble following, then my audience is probably having a harder time following because a lot of times people coming to this are new to theory and they are either multitasking workers with earbuds in or they're playing video games after work or they're driving between places or cooking or working out. But the point is, is like they're not sitting there usually reading it on their own. Maybe they will in the future. And that's what people do is when they don't have the energy, but they've got a little time, they'll, uh, you know, go to YouTube and then eventually it'll put something on their radar. It'll become a burning question and then they'll read it later. And so what I hope is that some people will read your book and that they'll buy it this week. That'd be awesome. So once it's actually available, please share it in the comments below. But do you want to talk a little bit about this book and, and your, your overall work? And then we can talk about the, the theory of breakdown and what, what is it exactly that everybody's missing? Um, okay, so yeah. So f firstly, thanks very much for inviting me on. And I'm really sorry for being late. <laughs> it's okay. uh, um, yeah, so Grossman is important. I think just as, as someone who really got to grips with the actual theory of like the most accurate reading of, of Marx after Marx and Engels. Um, and I mean, it's funny that you you um, used that quote a minute ago because I used it in the, the other day for something I'm writing um, about how Grossman is now becoming more relevant than ever. Like he's been... Uh, like, like you say, Marx and, and Grossman were kind of undeser undeservedly sort of cast aside during their lifetimes, but they're relevant again and they're becoming increasingly relevant as capitalism ages. And you could even argue that they're they're becoming relevant for the first time in a, in a sense. Obviously, they've been relevant before, but and their crisis theory has always been relevant. But if there is a final breakdown of capitalism where it has a crisis that just becomes insurmountable on a capitalistic basis that that really forces through a socialist revolution then then that would be the case um so that the the thing with grossman is he put, he puts the the crisis theory and the breakdown theory back into uh he works back towards the essence of it because there's of course there's all sorts of reasons that a crisis can occur that an economic contraction can occur but but most most of those would be external to the mode of uh, production per se um where so what he's talking about is the there is a a dual characteristic 
in the mode of production as it exists, as it has to exist, that actually creates the necessity for economic crisis in the way that capitalism develops. Um, and it, so we tend to get recessions every 10 years. And what he's saying is that these these recessions will tend to get proportionately worse over time and they must eventually sort of um, work towards one that has to be will will at the time and obviously you can't tell until it's over but will have to be counted as as a final crisis because essentially as the system gets bigger it becomes harder to reproduce and expand yet further so he's saying that eventually there has to be an absolute limit to capital accumulation um and i think we are heading towards that at, at some point in this century, but I think probably a lot sooner. Um, and yeah, that's that's so. Once I'd read Grossman and found him clarifying of Marx, um, I decided to start writing. And one of the reasons was to try and explain it as clearly as possible. I, I don't know how well I've done that. Um, and obviously, we can talk more about trying to clear some of these some of the concepts involved up. Yeah. So. And if I was hearing this for the first time, I think I would think, well, I've already heard that capitalism is not sustainable, that it's crisis ridden and that, you know, the booms and busts, um, the great recessions that are, you know, these are caused by capitalism um, and that, you know, infinite growth on a finite planet is not possible. Right. So I think a, 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 even someone who's relatively new to this stuff, who's not even say expressly anti-capitalist could at least agree with all of that so what what's added to this by grossman's approach or his so, reconstruction so yeah he's the first one to accurately um explain the structure of capital after marx so there was a lot of confusion about what marx did and what capital was doing whether that was whether those distortions were done purposefully or what i mean some some of it probably was that some of it was lazy intellectualism some was probably just subconscious denial or whatever you want to call it um so grossman shows that Marx demonstrated a breakdown tendency in capitalism as a mode per se. So Marx and Grossman both use schemas, uh, sort of mathematical schemas that isolate the um, the main feature. They start out by by with an abstraction. So they isolate the main features of capitalism and develop a mathematical pattern to see if that mathematical pattern is sustainable. So what you have is constant capital, which is the value of the means of production, the value, not not the amount of means of production, but the value. And you have variable capital, which is wages, but it's in the abstraction. It's also um use values i.e commodities so the number being produced and it's also the population so it's abstracted all of those things together to simplify um simplify this schema 
down down to what you might want to call like a pure version of capitalism. So he 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 distills it down to a pure formula by focusing on means of production, wages, commodities, and what was the other one? Popular, popula- like working population, the size of the working population. Okay. So you've got con- so you've got constant capital, which is the value of the means of production, the value of it, and then variable capital, which is the the value of wages. So how much is being the out the outlay of wages? So and then you have the capitalist class and the working class, um, and um, you don't the, the the schema excludes the other classes, whether you want to call them third persons or the consuming class or whatever. It excludes those to simplify it. It excludes competition. So there's essentially a singular capitalist class, and it excludes foreign trade. It excludes competition. The, sorry. It excludes competition, even. Yeah, just initially. Just initially. Right, because I was going to say, I, 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 as far as I can tell, I think that, yeah, once we get more into it, competition definitely plays a big role it, in it, the, yeah, the, the the rate of the profit tending to fall, right? Yeah, so he brings competition back in later, and he brings on he brings in all the other aspects uh, uh, that were initially excluded back into it, and see to see what effect it has. So he starts out with um, a the pattern is that. Um, constant capital grows by 10% every year or cycle um, and variable capital uh, grows by 5%. So what you have is and variable a, capital very variable capital is 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 just the way, the value of the wages. Yeah, essentially, yeah. Okay. Um so the reason there's the 10 to 5 um ratio is because the abstraction needs to be plausible. It needs to relate to empirical evidence. You can't just like come up with a, you can't have an oversimplified abstraction that doesn't relate to to the empirical evidence, which shows that constant capital grows tends to grow more than variable capital. Um, so what he so what happens? He's going through the cycle and seeing if the amount of capital accumulating can be sustained in the long run whilst also um covering so so whilst also covering the growth of variable capital and the consumption of the capitalist class so you have to have that in there because otherwise because that's the incentive for being a capitalist so the so there's also a rate of surplus value which is held constant um at a hundred percent so that's constant throughout each cycle um so as constant capital grows by ten percent and surplus value grows by five percent is that constant rate of surplus value enough to cover the additional capital that you need to grow constant capital at the postulated rate of ten percent and the variable capital at five percent. So, a, a Marxist called Otto Bauer had used this same schema, and he did it. He did it, and he his conclusion was there's no problem. 
the the constant capital can keep growing at five at ten percent and the variable at five and um there's no problems with accumulation uh he did show that the rate of profit was tending to fall but it wasn't a problem because the additional there was enough additional capital there's enough additional variable capital and there's enough uh for the consumption of the capitalist class but he only did it for four years or four cycles which strikes strikes me as intellectual laziness at the very least um so what grossman does is he says okay let's carry this on a bit longer and see what happens and you get to year 36 and it breaks down there's there's not enough additional capital um or additional variable capital to cover the the rate of accumulation at the postulated rate um and there's the the um the consumption fund for the capitalist disappears so in this pure version of uh of capitalism which starts out with a kind of equilibrium that you would expect out in in times where we, we're not suffering a crisis in terms of supply and demand between capital and and labor um he shows that that it that in this normal or, or pure version of capitalism it the system does break down you you essentially have a surplus of capital which he calls an, an overaccumulation of capital that can't be reinvested profitably so it, it's not going this this amount this surplus capital that arises can't um can't uh breed additional profit and alongside that you get a surplus of labor as well that can't be reemployed so then the so now you have supply and demand out of whack and the accumulation breaks down that's what he's showing the numbers in the accumulation uh process break down he also calls this a value valorization process so what is the purpose of capitalism from its standpoint it's to produce value and this accumulation of value is also accumulation of capital um so capital is the means of production but constant capital is the value of this means of production so you get to the point where this this accumulation of value or constant capital breaks down so that would mean that the initial um the initial numbers that were used in terms of rate of accumulation uh rate of surplus value uh growth of variable capital whatever it is it would need to change at that point it needs to change to get the process going again so it's a breakdown in valorization a breakdown in accumulation and and an over accumulation of capital but it's also an underproduction of surplus value okay and so okay. at this point i think we've you've used a lot of the terms that i think we could probably spend the next you know hour unpacking especially you know terms like uh valorization and surplus value i feel like these these we can elucidate these terms everybody so just just if, if you're if you've been following along so far but you're struggling don't worry 
we will get into this a, a little bit more. He's giving us the broad strokes. So just for now, a, a lot of these things, leave question marks on them, keep it, keep it as placeholders. We'll come back to them. So, but what I want to take from here is that so far we've got like this, this simplified abstract model of a purified form of the processes of, of capitalism, its internal mechanisms, its dynamics. Mm -hmm. We're controlling for specific uh, factors and we are bracketing out other ones completely. You said that we excluded competition. We excluded other classes. I think we excluded uh, a couple other ones that we excluded. Uh, uh, I Foreign think trade is, is a is for, a big one. Foreign trade, supply, demand, yeah. right? There's, uh, yeah, there's so yes. Yeah, so we start with an equilibrium of supply and demand. There's a lot of things that are excluded. Uh, um, fixed capital, capital, for example. We're just we're just talking about constant capital. And, and fixed uh, capital would be a certain outlay, whereas constant capital is we're talking about um, the the cycle, the va the value per cycle. Okay, and we also have excluded uh, finance capital, or or at least uh, banks, right? Yeah, we're talking. Yeah, we're talking industrial capital. Yeah, yeah. And so, uh, I read Paul Maddox' uh, theory as critique um, towards the end of last year or beginning of this year. And I'm hoping to do a video essay on this channel about it. But at the beginning, he talks about the, he, he says, and I think he's drawing off of Grossman. And he's, he's saying, we can use terms from philosophy of science to talk about what it is that every scientist has to do in the development of a theory. And he talks about idealization and abstraction. And basically, a big part of it is you have to assume a sort of ideal model and you have to you have to abstract out of the the bigger context these different elements and then part of that means bracketing and excluding various aspects of the of the thing and then there are certain assumptions that you make that are merely methodological assumptions that are not taken to be true but they're functional you're going to treat them as though they're true so that they can help you get to the heart of the matter and so uh, you know he uses the example in physics where uh, you'll assume uh, a certain rate of decay or you'll assume um, a certain um, uh, you'll assume certain rates or you'll you'll even assume um, like a, like everything you know uh, uh, you'll assume something doesn't move when it actually does move so that you can measure other things against it um, I don't know my physics that well so I can't really use the, ter the terminology he develops in that in that or that he's drawing upon in that piece but the point is is that uh, philosophy of science people have already established that everybody who's made fundamental contributions to fields of the sciences is doing these things. Um, and so, but obviously there's also problems with doing that. And so one of the big problems with doing that as far as the, the, the inheritance of this project, and we can come back to the, you know, to uh, mitigating circumstances or, or, or what is it called? The uh, counter tendencies, right? Yeah, and that's something we'll have to get into because this this model that we're talking about, um, there there are all these other aspects that get excluded that become a mitigating uh, or or counter tendencies 
that actually keep the complete breakdown from occurring and kind of keep mm -hmm. capitalism chugging along or coming back from recessions. Um, but I think that the, the main point that you're going to bring up is that there's it's fundamentally you can only mitigate it so far. Right. And so we'll, we'll, we'll get we'll get more into what those uh, those counter tendencies are here in a second. But I want to bring it back to the misinterpretation of of Das Capital. So because he's doing this in volume one, he is making these simplifying assumptions. Um, there's a kind of Marxist who took what he's doing as this is the theory um, and this is how the world works when yeah he was actually being pretty clear that this is that no he's he's doing he's doing like this ideal model abstraction thing and he's going to add the other pieces back as he develops it and so you know in volume two he adds back a bunch of stuff and then in volume three that's where you get to kind of like actually existing capitalism how it's working today right and so uh but but bernstein famously goes well marx is wrong um marx Marx was wrong. Capitalism has no problem uh, chugging along. It's actually adapting pretty well to these so-called contradictions. And uh, so there is no... So, so Marx is wrong. There is no uh, problem f with uh, the, the ultimate breakdown. And then Kotsky responds and is like, oh yeah, well, Bernstein, well, uh, you're wrong. Um, because Mar Marx actually never said that. Marx never had a theory of breakdown or, or a theory of of uh, of crisis that you're talking about and and so bernstein's saying marx is wrong because it's capitalism is not going to actually break down kosky responds and says there was there never was a theory of breakdown so uh which is obviously a problem because i mean there is and i think uh grossman uh, points out there was no there's no talk of a theory of uh surplus value there's no talk of a theory of wages uh, but obviously Marx is developing a theory of surplus value and of wages. And so if we can say that there's a theory of surplus value and of wages, even though Marx never calls it such, um, then obviously we can talk about his theory of breakdown because it is there, right? Am I, am I, tra yeah. am I, am I tracking so far? So, yep. so how, how, how did Burns, oh. did Bernstein, um, with his, you know, his little model that he only took for four years and all of this, well, or uh, no, sorry, uh, Bauer. I meant Bauer. Did Bauer? You were talking about him. Did he uh, write that before Bernstein came along and said Marx was wrong? Actually, no. Bernstein had already had already said that, but Bauer like was the theorist that they went to because he had done this schema showing okay. showing a harmonious. Uh, I think he wrote it in nineteen oh four. And Bernstein's Bernstein's big uh, big work was 1899, but um, yeah. So Bauer did this schema showing this sort of what he called a harmonious um, growth, and um, I mean he talked about um, he talked about capital having to readjust in the real world to population growth. And that that would, you know, so there would be, there would be, ex he, I think he called that a sort of external reason for crisis um, because you can't grow, you can't control the population growth. Whereas Marx actually says that there is a law 
for population growth that is determined by the relations of, of capitalism. Um, so yeah, like like what you were saying, basically all of the um, all of the theorists of the time, like you said, mis mistook Marx's abstraction for his concretization. They they the conclusions he drew from his abstraction were treated as his empirical conclusions of how the system worked and so they drew wrong conclusions from that about Marx about his breakdown theory I mean this was used to show that there was no breakdown theory by you know Kautsky once he had become a reformist uh, even Rosa Luxemburg she she um she made this exactly the same mistake but somehow she comes to the conclusion that there is a breakdown theory but that it's located in consumption. So she's the first she, under-consumptionist? Well, she's what... I wouldn't say she's the first under-consumptionist. Under you could probably call her a breakdown under-consumptionist because she still supports breakdown theory. And, and Grossman praises her for this. He, she, he calls it her great contribution. Um, but her theory is that there's too much surplus value to be consumed by in consumption so she says that the problem is uh, capitalism needs to keep finding new non-capitalist markets to export commodities into but as the world industrializes there'll be fewer and fewer of those and so that becomes unsustainable so that takes the problem away from um, that takes the problem away from production that, that removes it to the, the realm of consumption. And so Grossman points out, well, that means there's too much surplus value. And yet, actually, um, capitalism has an insatiable thirst for, for surplus value. There's not enough of it being produced um, for, at, for the rate of accumulation to, to continue as it, as it is going. So... Yeah, that that was the main problem, and so Grossman's the first one to point out that these are abstractions. This is, um, you know, this is a simplification, and we to to assess what Marx actually did, we need to start from there, and then work back towards the empirical uh, real wealth findings by reintroducing the elements that were. Um, initially discarded it in the abstraction and seeing what effect they have on that abstraction. So he calls these uh, modifications and counter tendencies. Counter tendencies, right. Yeah. So and, and a way of thinking they will about like postpone or speed up the tendency to break down. Like if you think about like, okay, so you have a human organism or, you know, you have a living organism and there's inertia and it's going to die. <laughs> but there are things that can keep it alive longer, <laughs> you know, and so at, at the level exactly, yeah. you have a human, um, there are things that you can do as a human that will keep you alive longer. You know, there are there are there are practices and habits and ways of being in the world that will keep you from falling off of cliffs. You know, we can put up guardrails that'll make it more less likely that you'll go off of the cliff. Uh, you, you can eat food and sleep properly. You know, that'll extend your lifespan. Right. So. The, those are in a set, you know, in a sense, we're dying from birth, but there are 
counter tendencies that can keep us alive longer. And uh, capitalism exactly. is also dying since birth, but there are counter tendencies that can keep it alive longer. So what? Yeah, I like. I, I liken it. Uh, uh, that's a great um, analogy, and I also sort of liken it to a bodybuilder who's addicted to muscle gain, because every time he gains or she gains um, a, a certain amount of muscle. They then have to work even harder than before to go up again and, and gain even more muscle. And eventually, you know, they get top heavy, plus they're aging at the same time and they can't keep it up. It's the same with capitalism. The bigger it gets, the more surplus value it has to produce than it did before to to keep that addiction to the muscle gain in this in this analogy going. I like that analogy a lot. I think I remember you using it actually. Um, and so I, I do want to talk about some of those counter tendencies, but first I want to bring in, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the, so we've got Bernstein, Bauer, Kotsky, Luxembourg. We haven't talked about Rupert Hilferding yet. So as far as expansion packs and add-ons to, to capital as a, you know, the fundamental project of critique of political economy, um, one of the problems, first of all, is that a lot of them thought that instead of a critique of political economy, that it was itself Marxist political economy, which if you read it as such, then he's hardly a footnote to Ricardo. And that is a mistake that a lot of people make. Um, but I, I, I still am, because I haven't read all of their big contributions and add-ons, I don't know which ones make these big errors and, and, and in which ways, but, uh, you know, so Luxembourg's the accumulation of capital was a really big, important expansion pack that talks about imperialism, colonialism, you know, uneven development. Uh, and that was very impactful on Lenin. And is is this the work that she where she talks about uh, where she talks about all of this? Where she talks? Yeah, about that's her, that's her big work. And her, that's her big assessment of Marx's capital all right and then hilferding kind of all and they're all kind of responding to like well capitalism's not failing yet or it hasn't failed yet um and in fact like uh the the workers are getting kind of comfy in uh in germany right now and so uh you know the unions have had some big wins we have a big socialist party hey maybe reformism is the way and then obviously you have the people who are looking at countries not in the imperial core who are going well we're not seeing those developments here and the workers are not comfy. And in fact, we don't even have a fucking proletariat yet. So what the hell? And so, you know, that's Luxembourg and Lenin both being like, eh, there's something going on here. And then Hilferding comes along with finance capital as well. And finance capital is a big addition. Could, could you say a few words about like what it contributes and how it does or does not skew the understanding of capital? Um, so the problem with Hilferding is that he sees um, finance capital as this pre this kind of pre-socialist um, tendency leading up to a straightforward because he sees accumulation as harmonious. Um, he sees uh, this this justifies the reformist path. Because he's saying it's naturally going to evolve into socialism um, because there's no breakdown tendency. 
So all Hilfing, uh, all all we conclude from that is that you have a reformist party. It partakes, it, it participates in the election process, and as this uh, harmonious accumulation um, gets to a certain point. Um, finance capital starts to act as a socialising force and there's some truth in that um, but I think it's a it's a kind of it's one of those one-sided ways of looking at it um, from from Hilferding's perspective and he starts saying things like if we nationalise six banks then we're pretty much we're pretty much on the way to, to getting a full socialist economy and he sees because he sees the monopolization of production as a harmonizing f- factor as well. So in a way, he's that's almost like a free market. <laughs> that's almost like a free market perspective because you just you just let it leave it to its own devices and it will continue to monopolize, which is a kind of perverse way. It's almost like an inverted free free market way of looking at it um so yeah he, he, that's that's where he draws his reformist conclusions from from this monopol this sort of natural monopolization and this harmonious accumulation because there's no breakdown tendency there's no need for a revolution so and and the main thing that mediates this the 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 breakdown tendencies and contradictions of capital for him for root for Hilferding is is just finance capital itself. So just centralized banks being able to manipulate currency or get money to people in advance is is like yeah. the solvent. Yeah, he sees uh, the banks as the, the 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 part playing the most important role rather than industry. Whereas. Uh, Grossman and Lenin see it the other way around. They see the the they see the fusion of of the bank of banking capital and industrial capital as more as industrial capital absorbing banking capital and banking capital serving industrial capital. Whereas Hilferding sees it the other way around, and that was true in the early phases of capitalism. Industry was more reliant on banking capital. Uh, you know, for reserves, uh, for reserve funds and that sort of thing and credit. But the the, the older capitalism gets, the more independent um, and self-financing the the um, monopoly industrial corporations become. Okay. And so, in a sense, he's taking one of the things, Hilferding is taking one of the things that was excluded from volume one and then, and it's and it's one of the counter tendencies, and it has some counter tendency effect, uh, especially for early on. You're saying, and but Hilfer ta- Hilferding's taking this sort of he's inflating it as like this is the this is the ca- the counter tendency that Marx didn't see. Of course, I I understand haven't read Volume Three yet, but I think he gets into banking in Volume Three, does he not? Or is that Volume Two? Um, I mean, it's in both, but oh, okay. um, more, the thing is, there's more detail in in Volume Three. That's the thing. Okay. It goes into the the real detail, the real crux of it. I'm sure Hilferding um, did not see that, did he? Um, I don't know. 
because okay. it's it's not clear to me whether they just didn't some of like some of them hadn't read Capital or they had and they'd uh, Volume Three or they had and they did just didn't get it or just saw it as a an extension of Volume Two and uh, obviously there was a delay in the in the um, in the publication of of Volume Three. Right. So there was a way, and that must have contributed to the to to some of this confusion. But but Grossman's writing in 1929, uh, Law of Accumulation. So he's writing about the last. So Cap Volume Three's been out by for over 30 years by then. So um, there's really no excuses by that point. No one has produced um, a clear explanation of of the structure of Capital, especially Volume Three. No one's cleared up this confusion, so he feels compelled to to write um, his book and try and clarify these things. I wouldn't say that Marx um, um, sees banking as a counter tendency per se. It's it's more that at the earliest stages of capitalism, when it's starting uh, in its uh, its earliest epoch of development, industry is is um, dependent on banking just for you know for reserves and for credit um but as that um as industry builds itself up and it becomes more independent and more and therefore more self-financing and companies today like um apple and uh, google and amazon they can operate largely without the banks and i would say now that they're quite keen to just get rid of the banks they they're you know naught percent interest rates for them um aren't a problem because that is a a counter tendency um in that it enables the cheapening of capital for borrowing and lending but they can do that themselves they can a lot of the major corporations can do a lot of their own lending and borrowing and and all that sort of thing whereas the banks they're really concerned about the interest rate because they earn their money from interest and interest is a form of profit um but it's 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 a slice of the pie interest it's not um it's not where profit arises from so profit profit is a form that surplus value takes um and then that can be split into various forms such as interest and rent and so the banks are really a, a rent a rentier um form of so they the profit they're making is a really a rentier form and that's eating into the amount of surplus value that is available to industrial capital so the whole way through capitalism there's a struggle developing and as the time goes on it's industry that's tending to win that struggle and marginalize banking capital Okay, so not everything that gets excluded from the ideal model in Volume 1 is uh, a, a counter-tendency, right? But Yes, that's the landlords, not a counter-tendency at all. Always going to um, uh, be a, a class that's eating into the surplus value that could otherwise be dedicated to production. Okay. And so, uh, you know, and so it sounds to me like Bernstein 
and later Kotsky, but also Bauer and Hilferding, they're all kind of of the reformist vein. And that yeah. Rosa and Lenin are obviously revolutionary socialists. Um, and so let's talk. I can, I'm still getting what you're saying. It says reconnection successful on OBS Studio. So we should be back, but I'm not going to resume until I see the green light. Okay, we're back. Sorry about that, folks. Um, what was I saying? Oh, it seems like the reason people care about arguing against a breakdown theory of capital or arguing for it is usually something about reform versus revolution. And it's controversial because you have uh, reformists who are basically like, well, we can just worry about getting some some reformist wins for the working class in the short term uh, and waiting because capital will undermine itself. And you have revolutionaries who say there is no breakdown that's actually going to end capitalism and we can't wait for it. We just need to make it happen right now. But then you also have a more Grossmanite approach to revolution that says, no, we always have to be planning and getting ready for it. It's, it's coming, though. And, and, uh, and, and basically, we just prepare ourselves uh, for it. Um, am I... Gosh, I'm hearing myself echo, but I'm about to I'm about to go grab my coffee. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how the debate revolved around breakdown uh, and was egged on by assumptions about how the revolution needs to happen or doesn't need to happen. And talk about these different people, Bernstein, Kotsky, Bauer, Hilferding, Rosa, Lenin. Let's talk about their kinds of different positions and then Grossman, why he thinks they're, they're some of them might be onto something here, or, or maybe not. Okay. I know that's a big question. So, so let's just divide it up into simple. Um, there's pure reformists who don't believe in getting rid of capitalism and implementing socialism. They they just want to reform capitalism, make it and make it better, make it work for more people. Um, then there's the reformists who are socialists and are um, in favour of, of socialism, but they see it as an ethical or psychological uh, project. And and again, it, it, this is within a ref- so like a reformist road to socialism and they want socialism because not because capitalism um is going to collapse and is unsustainable, but because socialism would be better for for the for the the whole population. And the real reason that we need to get rid of capitalism is for ethical reasons. So Kautsky sees war as a symptom of um, the ruling class being uncivilized, and so you need the working class to become the ruling class and make the means of production socialist um, to bring about a properly civilised society. Um, Hilferding sees, as I said, a reformist road um, as a natural process emerging from um, the monopolisation of industry and the financialization of the system. 
that's more or less how it was for the reformist rotors. Um, Rosa Luxemburg's breakdown theory, which Grossman um, criticizes as being uh, a sort of wait wait for breakdown to happen and then and then go. I think that was actually quite unfair because he he's also very keen on her. I kind of feel that Grossman had conflicting or contradicting an analysis of of Luxembourg because he's very um, uh, complimentary about reform versus revolution. Her pamphlet, which really stresses the f- the f- the need to for communists and revolutionaries to support reform struggles for reforms, a because it prepares the working class um, in struggle. And B, because you're not standing aside and letting the working class do all the work and sort of separating yourselves from them. Because if you do that, it's going to be harder for revolutionaries to influence um, reformists. And the fact is, as we know right now, the vast majority of workers are either kind of apolitical or they're reformists to, to some extent or another. And Grossman's very clear because he was obviously criticised as um, by by some of these reformists and by other communists as having a a kind of um, mechanical automatic um, theory of revolution where um, he he's divorced his theory from the class struggle, but that's not what he says at all. He, he he's saying that knowledge of the breakdown theory is like the seed that's be that we're trying to sow in people's minds and the class struggle is the fertilizer or whatever you want to call it that that turns that seed into a flowering consciousness and so you it's dialectical you can only you can only develop you can only implant that seed by joining in the class struggle and the class struggle can only you know um grow grow that seed into consciousness um through the process of class struggle itself and so what grossman is getting at is that the capitalist class is compelled to attack the wages and the living conditions of the working class and presumably because you know, and you know, presume he's taking human nature into account when he's talking about this. Presumably, because the working class wants to survive and carry on living, it is compelled to fight back. And so, when you get a partial breakdown, you get a struggle over the uh, distribution of surplus value. So when the capitalist class is the one that is succeeding in, in that struggle, the, the amount of surplus value spread out across the working class is thinner. When it's the other way around and the working class is, is winning um, the battles, it's got a bigger proportion, a bigger share of the surplus value and that means there's less surplus value that can be dedicated to production and accumulation. And so that in itself can contribute to 
the onset of the next crisis. It can bring it forward. So Grossman's very clear that the the, the class struggle can uh, strengthen or weaken the the breakdown tendency. Um, and and it's almost ironic that it's when the the working class is um, succeeding the most that the breakdown tendency will um, will be stronger. And of course, that means the job of revolutionaries is to point that out and say, this is actually going to this is actually going to snap back. This is going to force the capitalist class to come back even harder than it did last time. Because if it doesn't, the, the the system will break down, and of course the 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 working class will suffer as a result. Um, and that's why the 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 job of the revolutionary is to to say to the working class, you've got to go all the way, and fight for socialism. Obviously, per, the the period of accumulation itself totally influences the outcomes. Or well, not totally, but largely influences the outcomes, and that's why we haven't seen um, a world socialist revolution at, for 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 the point of time we're in. And looking back, the capitalist class has been able to stop at a certain point in its attacks um, without pushing harder um, because there's been enough surplus value to dedicate to um, accumulation at that point in time and so they've been able to negotiate a certain settlement uh, workers have been able to they're, they're like, like the, the large uh, the majority of the working class hasn't come to a point where the systems become so intolerable that it feels compelled to overthrow capitalism so there's all these things going on and what I would say is that in a final breakdown, the capitalist class will will either feel compelled to, will, will essentially be compelled to bite off more than it can chew in a way that it hasn't in the past. Um, and essentially it won't be able to pay enough people enough wages for the working class to to subsist within a capitalist system but at the, at the so the point the point i'm just saying is that reformism has, has won so far for a reason right and that is that the the the, dis, the distribution of surplus value that has been available there's been enough of, available for reformism to win out well and there's probably a handful of the counter tendencies <clears throat> that are that Marx does talk about that are involved as well as other counter tendencies that I think theory tends to contribute um, I think Vivek Chibber in his recent conversation with Slavoj Žižek he talks about one counter tendency that does not get considered he says by the older new left either one both get it wrong and that is that you know usually like the the new left would see the the reason capitalism keeps going along and the workers aren't organizing the new left says oh well it's because of these outside factors you know uh and there's various outside factors that you know or or you know it might be like desire and you know people desire their own self-undermining or you know there's all these various ways of that theory can talk about it but then vivek chibber goes no uh, 
what, what people aren't thinking about is like how when you're super precarious and a lot's riding on your job, um, it is in your self-interest, uh, in your short-term self-interest to not work in solidarity with other people. It's, it's a little gaslighting and, 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 and uh, condescending to say, oh, well, the workers just don't know what's in their best interests. But at the end of the day, like <laughs> keeping your head down low and just making sure that you don't get fired is, is in your short-term interest. The point is obviously it's not in your long-term interest uh, because this is not sustainable. And um, what happens to your coworkers can happen to you, even if you manage to stay on. And, but but the thing is, is like to be less condescending. I think Chibber's point is like it's it's a very condescending stance to just say no. The workers just don't know what's in their interest. Well, they do know what's in their short-term interest. They do know how, generally speaking, how to survive day to day. The issue is this longer-term perspective that they don't have. And this is where you're talking about the seed and the fertilization, and uh, the, you know, so how was that seed being sown at the time that Grossman writes this? Well, if I remember correctly, I think you said that there was a, you know, all these books coming out like uh, about, oh, there's not going to be a great crisis. And then and then Grossman's like, y'all are a bunch of idiots. And then the great crisis and then the great crisis happens like right after he says that. Is that I'm summarizing. Is this who said it's not going to happen famously right before it happens? And then was this book, The Law of Accumulation, published right before it happens, and, and how, uh, how, does, how does it go down, and what, what is that great crisis? Yeah, so none of them saw the, none of the reformists saw the Wall Street crash and the Great Depression coming. Um, in Grossman's book, he says there's a brewing crisis in America, and he basically does this from by looking at the stock market. He's like, the stock market's going wild, all all of the capital is being thrown at the stock market into speculation because there's no there's an over accumulation of capital that can't be reinvested profitably in production that's why it's going into speculation that's why the stock market's going crazy so he's he's i mean he doesn't say oh we're on the verge of um a great depression but he calls it a mass he uses the word massive he says we're on a, it's a there's a massive over accumulation of crisis and there's a massive crash coming um two years before that so that was nice early his book comes out early 1929 wall street crashes in september i think um two years before that kautsky says um capitalism um stands on firmer ground than ever before and you know it's recovered it's recovered from the war and you know this is this shows that there's no internal breakdown um, mechanism um, because this is this had the the theory of breakdown had been debated this whole time, but it mostly had been dismissed or misunderstood. And so this is what Grossman's trying to fix. I just want to come back on your other point about um, why. Why isn't the working class rising up and overthrowing capitalism? Um, is it just because they've been brainwashed or something? Like, um, obviously, the mass media is very powerful um, and influential and uh, uses all kinds of misdirection. Um, you know, 
probably doesn't understand capitalism itself so he's quite happy to um, talk about the inexhaustibility of capitalism and the wonders of capitalism um, the th the other the thing though that Grossman points out is that the the working classes living standards can rise um, whilst the rate of exploitation is also rising because one of the counter tendencies is devaluation so um, the 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 more um, abundantly commodities are produced the cheaper they get and so even though the value of your labor power also is devalued the commodities that you're buying have, have been devalued and so you as time goes on under capitalism outside of crisis periods you can actually buy more commodities than you did in the um, period before so obviously there, there's problems with because this is some of the reformists were like well Marx uh, was right at the it felt like Marx was right at the time because the working class was very poor but actually there's been a very large or substantial rise in the living standards of the working class since Marx died and so this proves that he was wrong and um, there's no reason for the working class to overthrow the the ruling class for economic reasons but then so then you start think so then you think and Grossman's like well Gross Marx did Marx never said that the working class's living standards always fall or never rise. He he agreed that it did rise um, because capitalism becomes more productive as time goes on. Because another one of the counter tendencies is innovation, which enables um, the productivity of labour to rise. Um, the expansion of production, even on the same method of production without innovation is also a counter tendency that will sustain the rate of profit where it is um but yeah so if you're cheapening the commodities sufficiently you're producing more surplus value per commodity in 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 the sense that um more of the laborers working time is becoming surplus value that's what deepening the rate of exploitation is it's uh, the the theft of more surplus labor time than before in contrast to necessary labor time which is the amount you're keeping the amount of value you're keeping to sustain your own living standards right um right. and then at the same time commodities are getting cheaper so you can buy more commodities than before and obviously it's not something that equalizes out across the whole working class like portion of the working class will become unemployed a portion will get a bit poorer but maybe the majority of the working class with each cycle after the crisis has passed will actually be better off in terms of their real wage which is actually in 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 technical terms measured as the number of commodities consumed so so consumerism war and innovation are three oh i i added war just now actually i was going to bring it up as a question but these are all counter tendencies and um i think you talk about war in 
in uh, in uh, socialism or extinction. Um, and uh, but you haven't talked about it here as a counter tendency. It sounds like you said Kotsky was like capitalism's managed to recover from the war, and the point. The point I think that you would bring up, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, is that capital war is actually one of the main ways that capitalism recovers from its internal crises. Is that correct? Yeah. So I forgot to say, Kautsky thought that one of he he when he was because um, he was initially pro breakdown tendency. And then later on, he revoked the idea and became reformist. But even when he was pro-breakdown tendency, he was saying that war, cap, he's saying that the ruling class is uncivilized, that they will impose war on the population and they will then be overthrown because of that. Whereas Grossman's saying, actually, war can postpone the breakdown tendency. There, there, are, there are parts of... Uh, there, there are two sides to war. Like it, part, like the 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 money that gets put towards war is obviously a drain on surplus value that could otherwise be uh, dedicated to the civilian economy and the production of commodities. So that's so initially it's a drain in that sense, but in the long term it does two things. It centralizes capital because the victors obviously um, collect tribute that they can then put towards their own accumulation. And the other side of it is that it speeds up the devaluation of both wages and um, existing capital. So if you've got um, a surplus of capital or this over accumulation of capital, it needs to be reconverted into productive capital. And one of the ways of doing that is to devalue it. But when you've got like an absolutely massive amount of of um, of overaccumulated capital that needs to be reconverted, like the usual methods of devaluation don't suffice. So what, what does it mean? I, like, so what does it mean to to devalue? So, OK, because it doesn't cheapen. Yeah, I know. I get. I get. So, okay, you've you've overaccumulated capital. So, what does that what does that mean? You've got uh, someone who's got a monopoly on a bunch of what on an area of the industry, like they've got a bunch of factories or something like that, and what these these are worth too much and they need to be devalued. Is that what you're saying? Like, what? I don't. I'm not quite following. It, it, they can't. They can't invest in it. It wouldn't be profitable to invest in it with the with the. So they can't expand um, the means of production that they have because it wouldn't be profitable to do so. Um, the rate of return would be zero or, you know, whatever. So what's an, exam- um, what's an what's a good example from either right now or back then of a, of a company that is not, like it's just like not worth investing in. It's become so unprofitable. Yeah, so let's say the car industry, like um, in Detroit, um, it's the um, it's become unprofitable for the capitalists that owned those factories to keep them open at all. 
because the the rate of profit was so low or the the mass of profit that was being produced wasn't enough to um to cover the costs of producing additional profit for for more investment to cover the growing wages of a growing population or growing working population and for their own consumption so you get a class struggle where they're trying to attack the wages of the workers in the um in those factories and it becomes cheaper to just close those factories down offer those um, workers jobs in other industries mainly the services industry rather than manufacturing and then instead effectively move those factories to china or indonesia or india or wherever where the labor is cheaper and the, the workers there are not they're just not going to be struggling for the same wages because they're all because relative to the wages they're already on this new employment opportunity is going to represent a uh an improvement for them so it becomes the easiest option in terms of the struggle but also in t from the capitalist perspective but also in terms of um um, growing the rate of exploitation, the amount of capital they're able to invest profitably. Does that make a bit more sense? I think so. And so is it primarily the, the competition between capitalists that makes it so that they can have a huge operation going, but that it's no longer profitable because they've had to, they've had to keep lowering their their prices in a, in a, to, to stay competitive with the other capitalists. But at the same time, that, you've got, you know, your workers want fair wages and the cost of living is going up. And so, you know, that's, that's one thing that they need to satisfy. Uh, and, and then they gotta, they gotta be investing in research and development and advertising and all these other things, but then they also want their own cut of the pie. And they've also got probably they, they owe money to banks and investors and shit that they've also got to be returning on. And so sometimes they're just like, you know what, like, let's either call it a loss or close down while we're ahead. Uh, oh, hey, we could either. And then this is where. So am I on, on track so far? Because we can talk about re-rationalization in a second. But am I on track? Yeah, I want to. Can I just clear up a couple of things? Yeah, please. Yeah. So there's two things I just want to clear up. Co competition is really important uh, and the effects of competition, but I don't want to give the impression that the crisis or or the dependence of accumulation lies with competition. Competition comes after the, the fact that the key problem is valorization. If you're, if you're, which means producing enough value. So you're a capitalist, right? You've got a certain amount of value. You want, you need to increase that value because that's what enables you to invest. So it's, it's dialectical. It's, it's one is dependent on the other. So if you're not creating enough value, you can't increase the amount of value you're producing, uh, investing in new value to, to produce new value. So that is the key thing. Now, um, the reason competition is is um, important 
is because it it it, it accelerates that process um, because if you're if the amount of so devaluation will not only devalue the amount of com the commodities because there's more commodities being produced but it will devalue subsequently the the value of the means of production i.e the constant capital it will devalue that as well so that will help uh, postpone a crisis um, but when you get that devalue of devaluation of constant capital there's suddenly less value so the pie is smaller relative to the number of capitalists so then competition intensifies and um, one capitalist let's say one capitalist out of four will have a, that bit much more capital that or or be the first one to come up with the the evolution in uh, in technology that enables them to the, to produce more first and to devalue their commodities so they then benefit from cutting prices right. and so they get more customers and the other three capitalists lose out and then they they have to then adopt either adopt the new technology and so that they can cut their own prices to catch up or cut them by even more or they go bust and they go out of business leaving fewer capitalists and that does tend to happen over time relatively and um or they have to be absorbed by by the capitalists that outcompeted them so you have this this dialectical process back and forth process of devaluation and competition really influencing and impacting each other the other thing i just want to clarify is that the, the when you get to the point of um over accumulation and, and and a partial breakdown so we could we could think of it as a partial over accumulation not a t not an absolute one and so you so you get a partial breakdown that's also necessary it's not just oh we've hit the buffers uh and and th there's a purpose to it. it it helps to spur the competition that i'm talking about the devaluation that i'm talking about at that point the 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 something has to change to get uh, to get um the process of accumulation underway again so you get this portion of capital that become of of, of um, production that basically becomes worthless because firstly you need to devalue it um and secondly that enables you to innovate and and the old means of production become useless because the new means of production is better at doing what the old um methods were doing it can do it faster and cheaper so then you get this um so, so effectively at that point it's not just devaluation of capital but it's also destruction of capital but war will speed that process up it will destroy that capital that when uh the, the capital that would have otherwise been destroyed through this just just disuse um will be destroyed quicker and other parts of capital would also be destroyed that that would have been that weren't even uh, being disused but they're just the capitalist needs to um 
need to speed up the devaluation of so that they can move on with expansion and, and innovation. But they won't necessarily be thinking of it like this. I was going to so, say, I was going like, to say, because it's not... And I think that's a big error on most people when they're when they first start thinking about capital critique, right? They they usually think it's about greed. Um, they think it's about. I actually heard a pretty big video essayist in TheoryTube recently say that, you know, the capitalists want this, the capitalists want that, the capitalists don't want the workers doing this, the capitalists don't. You know, there's a whole video like that, and and you know this person has a huge reach on their channel, and I was just like, oh, this is painful, because. It's not about what they want, and it's not about how they understand it, right? This is a this is a system, and it's functioning in a certain way. How they interpret it might be different. So, what does it look like from the businessman's standpoint? How would how would they typically be thinking in this time of crisis leading up to a war? You know, I mean, I think um, um, it's important to establish what they want. Um, but I think we also and and how that affects the class struggle and day to day life and everything. I'm not dismissing that at all. But it's also important to know where that is manif what's what that's manifesting from. Um, in, right. in terms of war, I mean, there's um, I mean, there are quotes from ruling class capitalists, things like "What we need is a good war," but what they mean is, um, you know. Th and there, there's one on business, uh, I think it was the website Business Insider that's in my book, Socialism or Extinction, at the top of the chapter on war. And it says, do we need another war to get things going again? Because there's been so much stagnation. Um, but there will also be, there would, uh, um, I can't remember who it was now, but there's a quote from ruling class capitalist from the period where um it like imperialism was really thought more of as colonialism and um he says what you need to do to prevent a civil war at home is to wage war abroad so that you're sucking those resources back into your own country which effectively means you know um even though he doesn't think of it he's not think of it in this way but it's he, he effectively means we have to accumulate overseas and bring that back into the domestic, bring the revenue from that back into the domestic uh, economy so that the domestic population isn't, you know, fighting over too small uh, a slice of the pie sort of thing. Sorry, you're cutting out just a little bit here. Uh, it says on my side that I have an excellent connection. Let's see. I'm going to do an internet speed test. But kind of, it's been for like the last 15 minutes. You've been kind of lower resolution. Your speech got a little garbled at a couple of points, but I didn't want to cut you off because this has been really good. Uh, I think it's, it's so far, I'd say everything has been understandable. And my internet speed is fast. So I think it's probably just the fact that you're coming at us from over the ocean and so you know it's going to be a little unreliable from time to time but uh if it if it got a lot worse we could always just uh restart the call but we'll see so what i'm hearing though is uh yeah it, it, some capitalists used to be a lot more mask off about this kind of thing is one thing that you're saying um and that it's a sort of basic i think that actually 
not from an economic standpoint, but just from a basic political philosophy standpoint, it's, I think, a basic truism that to prevent a civil war, you go to war with someone else. And so this is, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's a person in a position of power who does statecraft, who doesn't know that. Um, and that, I, you know, it, it seems like in capitalism, you know, in, in American capitalism, you could have people who don't know that because we get some real idiots in power today, supposedly in power. But the thing is, is like obviously the CIA and, uh, you know, like the, the, there, are, there are bigger forces at work than, 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 say, you know, Obama or Trump, right? And what they understand. But I think even someone like Trump can understand at a sort of gut level that scapegoating an outsider um, can kind of bring in a sort of unity. And obviously right now we're seeing um, the squad, you know, the six most progressive Democrats, uh, the supposed outsiders, um, all just voted in lockstep with the Democrats um, and a lot of the Republicans uh, for $40 billion uh, towards Ukraine plus an additional few billion ostensibly like per week, uh, as well as like, it's already been several billion. And I mean, honestly, we were putting billions towards Ukraine, I think what, since 2008, 2014, something like that. Right. Because obviously we've also been involved over there since before this. So when Biden says that all of this is unprovoked and we didn't see this coming and you know, it's, he's lying because we've also got speeches from him where he was talking about how this was guaranteed to happen. So He's acting surprised now, but it's not a surprise. So that's coming at the end of, I mean, it, so here we are like gearing up for war, one that's supposedly, I mean, they're saying it's going to be protracted now, which means this is going to be going on for a long time and they're gearing up for it to go on for a long time. And, uh, you know, so w what you bring to this situation as well as to COVID and, and, and everything that's been going on for the last couple of years now, um, you bring a theory of crisis analysis that, you know, what, what is all of this manifesting from, to put it in your words, you know, uh, you said manifesting from earlier, which is also to say there's like base stuff going on. And now what, what we see and have strong opinions about and feel and deal with on a daily basis at this more superstructural level is downstream from what's going on at this base level. Um, and, you know, and so what you're doing is what Grossman was doing, you know, leading up to the Great Depression. He was saying, um, hey, everyone, you, all you socialists, supposed socialists who seem to think that capitalism is going to have no problem, <laughs> uh, who who are supposed to be you know, bringing consciousness of what's occurring to the working class are, are you know, you're, you're unaware apparently of like what the systemic critique of capitalism is supposed to be showing us is going on right now. And you're not even equipping yourselves or other people with the right language or kind of understanding of what causes these things. And then of course, you know, shit happened. And then, you know, Grossman stayed pretty marginalized by the Frankfurt school as well as by mainstream Marxists. And then, um, and so, so where you said he's saying that we need to be sowing the seed of an understanding of what causes these things um, into a fertile soil, which is, you know, the, the class organizing, 
um, uh, instead we 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 don't have that and and so people looking at the crises today whether it be covid or you know going you know gearing up for a long protracted war um people are uh, regular workers so there's what leftists say and then there's what regular workers say and you know what regular uh workers tend to think right now is that it's you know this is all just being caused by inflation which is being caused by printing money and that's the meme right now because the i mean the people of the rothbardian school and the libertarians and the neoliberals uh they organized around long-term goals and developed a sense of like how are we going to strategically disseminate information and 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 influence people in key positions of power so that when crises occur the interpretation of those crises is beneficial for our class interests and and they did that explicitly um as far back as in the i think 40s maybe 50s and uh instead the left has not the left has not done that so so to me it seems like ideologically speaking the 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 war of in, of how we ideologically interpret crises is being won by neoliberals even on the left um or people on the left are still influenced by this they don't have a good comeback to what inflation is they don't have a good comeback to why we're really going to war there's just kind of these tropes about oh you know well uh, you know the, the the right wing is just uh it, it just has so much power because people are just so racist and you know we just want to you know and that's you know that explains trump that explains putin um also you know the the people who get duped by p p p trumps and putins they're also to blame for covid because that was all avoidable you know if they just worn their masks and practice safe distancing we would have all everything would have been fine but if we pull back a few layers of this onion and go, get a little deeper uh you you've talked about uh, pr previously about how the there was already a great recession building up in 2019 um and a lot of these things i don't know like how, how do you apply this analysis today to the current situation how do you think the left needs to be thinking about these current crises through this lens how how how, how would that be done and how would that be disseminated to workers so that they can understand um that the inflation and the wars and the and the, the pandemic response and everything like that is is not these standalone isolated um, instances, but are, are related to something bigger. How, how would you talk about that to your average worker or to an activist who wants to be able to think about these things and, and think about how they should be sowing these seeds of consciousness? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very difficult, but we, I mean, one of the things I've been trying to do is use empirical data that is showing how things are on a downwards trajectory and then pointing to the fact that the, the these can only be explained by the theory so i tend not to start with the theory because that that um is obviously difficult to grasp and it's you know it took me a long time to grasp um but we can point to things like gdp growth um in the high income what the world bank calls the high income countries um that has tended to to slow down every decade for the last 50 years productivity growth um separate from that is like a slightly different measure um has been spluttering 
around one percent for the over a decade and um, not much higher in the previous decades um the big one for me is that the um energy return on investment has fallen for fossil fuel from 100 to 1 in 1930 to uh there was an estimate in 2019 estimating it at three or between three and six to one. So that means the amount of energy being returned on each dollar of investment is falling re relatively um, on a secular historical basis over the last century towards an absolute zero. That is that. And um, there's a guy called there's um I can't remember what his uh, what he does exactly, but there's a guy called Sid Smith on who's done a, a le who did a lecture called "How to Enjoy the End of the World," um, and he explains all this because he says it's not just fossil fuel that's affected; it's it's all of the energy um, uh, markets. Um, there's also things like the um, the 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 age of the average S&P 500 company has fallen from uh, 60 years about 40 years ago to about 18 years ago. Uh, sorry, to, from 60 several decades ago to 18 years. Um, so uh, the average comp like average S&P 500 company starting up today lasts um doesn't last many years compared to in the past so that's that's showing us something that's showing a, a clear historical trend towards a point where you know um new capitalist monopolies just aren't going to last very long um there's it's obvious that there's a centralization of wealth going on um inequality the rising inequality points to that the um the um, the monopolization of production. There's there's loads of websites that have done studies showing who owns what um, and clearing up this sort of illusion of choice. Um, where in the real world, most companies are owned by the same shareholders, or they have the um, the, the dominant shareholder of that company is the same across most companies you can think of. So that that's a centralization of wealth. That we can point to and you know how sustainable is a centralization of wealth it's quite obvious that that can't be indefinitely sustainable um there are studies showing that the general rate of profit has declined um on a secular historical basis from peak to to now now a trough so it goes up and down um, no one's saying that it doesn't. That it, no one's saying that it declines in a lin in a linear way, but on average it does, and towards zero. So there's all these empirical there's all this empirical data that points towards um, you know a decline in the system and an, a sort of an approaching absolute limit. Pr prices again, commodity prices. I know we've got inflation at the moment. But if you look at the historical um, pr historical prices, the prices of production are falling towards zero. And this is because in the age of automation, which we're now undergoing, 
Um, and I can speak a bit more on that in terms of the theoretical, the theoretical reasons for the rise of automation. Um, but it, it removes such, it is capable of removing one of, if not the biggest, biggest um, source of expenditure for capital, which is the wage. So if you can replace um, the bulk of your workers with um, automated machinery that works faster, doesn't take breaks, doesn't go on holiday, doesn't need sick pay, you're going to save a hell of a lot of money and that you, you are able to produce more, more quickly and then that has a seriously accelerating um, influence on the devaluation of commodities and capital. So yeah, we can we can appoint to all of these things, um, and then in terms of oh well, does that mean I should be an anarchist or does that mean I should be a, um, a Marxist that favours a socialist state? I would point to I would point to revolution also being a, a an evolution. Uh, a revolution is the last evolutionary step of a whole series of evolutionary steps. And I, so I would, my, a lot of my uh, uh, theory on this is pointing out that you can't run ahead of evolutionary, the, the, the natural pace of evolutionary development. If you try to, you will, you will bite off more than you can chew. And, and this is, again, why I, I kind of like say stuff like, well, I think the Soviet Union probably emerged prematurely and that's why it failed. Like it didn't have the technology that we have now with automation and digitalization and that sort of thing. And and I, so I say socialism is becoming an economic necessity for the first time. And I point to all of these all this empirical evidence that I've just been pointing to and so what so what have we got at the moment we've got we've gone from monopoly capitalism to state monopoly capitalism where the monopoly capitalist corporations are increasingly dependent on the state for subsidies um, for contracts and for facilities so for example the the um, pharmaceutical companies, the monopoly pharmaceutical companies, have closed down most of their research and development um, facilities because they can't afford to keep them open. Um, so they started using, you know, the state facilities almost exclusively for their own research and development. So what we have is this ever closer intertwined of the state uh, which is a capitalist state and monopoly capital so what I would say is what comes after state monopoly capital it, it, in evolutionary terms it seems to me that it would be something that we could call state monopoly socialism and then after that when you that enables us to stop the collapse in production, get production going again. Where so 
private enterprise becomes a state enterprise and then as those state enterprises become increasingly productive and um, prices continue to fall towards zero everyone's consumption uh, rises almost probably almost exponentially possibly I don't know but it will it will rise at a continually accelerating rate and then at that point, the state starts to become irrelevant. And I think that's how you get rid of the state um, once and for all. I've got a bunch of things I want to say as a follow-up. Also, uh, I, want, I want to hear you expand on a couple of things here. But really quick, I'm just wondering if you could like hang up and call me back and we'll see if that if that makes the connection any better because there's been a a lip syncing lag here for a while and it's fine. It's okay. not, it's not a big deal, but it's worth trying to see if we can fix it. Okay. Hang on a minute then. All right. Oh God, how do I hang up? <laughs> and actually how, how about this? Actually, I've got a, I've got a great idea, Ted. Um, I'm going to play a song, play some music so that we can also okay. get refreshed really quick. I'll get more coffee, run to the restroom. Let's just call this like a three-minute break. I think that uh, this is such a difficult topic and that it's very big brain stuff that I have a, a tremendous ratio of likes compared to actual viewers. And I think the reason I have a tremendous ratio of likes to actual viewers is because people see the importance of what you're talking about and they realize this is stuff they actually need to understand but they also realize they're not in the headspace for it in the moment. And so I think a lot of people are liking it with a plan of coming back to it. And so yeah. I appreciate that, everybody. So what we're going to do is uh, step away for a brief second um, and, uh, and then we'll continue because this is, this is – I feel like we've gone so much deeper into this than – than anything I've seen on the topic so far and that I, I want to go a little deeper still because this is going to help me – get my footing so that I can do some of this research on my own and then we can come back together and talk about it a little bit more once I actually have I feel like internalized it all a little bit better so but yeah. we're going to talk okay. more about uh, we're going to talk more about uh, innovation and uh, re-rationalization and outsourcing merging automation state enforcement monopolies and the ways that uh, a lot of this stuff is upstream from the stuff that we've been seeing over the last few years. We're also going to talk a little bit more about some of those mitigating counter tendencies. Um, and, uh, and, and, uh, and I think we still, I think we'll talk a little bit more about uh, value itself and uh, what we'll talk a little bit more about value itself and what's going on with uh, this idea of like reaching a zero point and the different ways that things can go from there. And so, but yeah, I'll be right back. I'm going to just play some music, folks. I'm going to go to the Be Right Back screen. Um, see you all, all right. See you all soon. Three, I'll call you back in a minute. Yeah, we'll take a few minutes. Here we go.